Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. This year's conference marks one of our biggest yet. You've heard experts talk about recovery and what to expect here in North America and around the world once we put this pandemic behind us. A key thread of our conversations over these three days is sustainability and ESG, a core element of our strategy at BMO. We have the extreme privilege today to have Mark Carney join us in our lineup of distinguished speakers. Mark has the rare distinction as serving as a governor for not just one central bank, but two. And now, as a UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance, he's taking a lead role in driving bold and urgent action on climate. The fight against climate change has entered a new stage. In both government and private sectors, the dialogue has shifted from viewing climate change as a risk to seeing the opportunity and taking faster action. Over the next hour, we'll hear Mark's perspective and insights on the opportunity, our role in moving our economies to net zero as quickly as possible. Welcome, Mark, and let's get started. Thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, Mark, and uh, it's great to see your leadership uh, on this topic. And uh, I am very confident uh, this audience is going to be in rapture uh, listening to your insights. Um, as COP26 client champion and finance advisor, You've recently announced an industry-led and UN-convened Net Zero Banking Alliance. As chair of the alliance, tell us about the commitments of the sector-wide forum and what success looks like if we get it right. Yeah, well, um, and, and again, thanks for having me and thanks uh, to BMO for all you're doing and everyone for uh, tuning in over, over lunch hour. I hope we can hold your attention, although it's, I guess, a global audience, so it's not lunch hour everywhere. But um, um, look, there's, we did two things for the Biden summit. Uh, the first uh, is the Net Zero Banking Alliance, which uh, which you referenced, and that is uh, for over 40 uh, banks uh, from five continents, uh, 28 trillion of uh, balance sheet uh, committed to net zero and you know and and bemo uh, to their credit has has a commitment to net zero let me be clear what what being part of the banking alliance uh is is it's not just the 2050 commitment it's a 2030 commitment that's important um uh because that matches uh what countries are doing in terms of their targets and we can we can get into that we saw obviously progress on countries uh in the last few weeks including canada and the us um but as well, uh, sectoral uh, strategies. So within 18 months, uh, the signatories will have sector strategies, decarbonization strategies. They'll choose the sectors, um, uh, how they define them and, and, and the decarbonization paths. Uh, but they'll roll those out in 18 months and then uh, another wave uh, in another 18 months from that. Um, so you get full transparency on financed emissions, invested emissions uh, that are there and a pathway to having the fair share of reduction uh, by 2030. Um, the second point I'd make, that's the banking alliance. But the second thing we did for the Biden summit was to bring together a banking alliance, the one I just described, one for asset owners, uh, one for asset managers, and we've also created one for insurance underwriters. So the core of the system, the true core of the system, and brought them all together under one umbrella group, uh, which is called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, Glasgow obviously being where COP is. Um, and, and the point of that is a couplefold. One is to have uh, 
same level of ambition across these alliances. I mean, there's lots of well-meaning uh, efforts that are out there, and I and I credit them all. Uh, but we need a standard that brings them up to the same level. That's the first thing. Uh, the second is to make sure that they're self-reinforcing. So the asset owners' expectations of the asset managers or the banks or the insurers that uh, in which they invest are consistent. And then thirdly, very importantly, that the infrastructure of the market is uh, supporting this transition, allowing investors, those on uh, this webinar, uh, those uh, in intermediaries such as BMO, uh, to do their job properly. So there's the right kind of disclosure. Uh, the rating agency analysis is supportive. Uh, indices on stock markets are helpful. Um, uh, that if uh, if there, and we very much want this to be the case, and we're working hard for this to be the case, a carbon offset market, a true market, true global market for carbon offsets measured in the tens of billions, not in the hundreds of millions, uh, that that works, that that's self-reinforcing, and that's consistent with the net zero plans. So uh, this is quite an important development, not just in terms of scale of balance sheet being committed, not just uh, in terms of um, the specificity of the targets and the near-term nature of the uh, strategies, but also as a mechanism for the private sector to work together um, to um, do exactly what you said at the outset, Dan, which is to, to shift from risk management into full realization of the opportunity and to make sure that capital flows uh, to those best opportunities uh, as they develop. So when you think back to the, the scope of that, that uh, in, in terms of global industry, uh, success looks like the majority of banks, all banks, insurance companies, what is success? Uh, I think what now to be clear, what we did in order to put this in place <clears throat> is there were some existing groups of banks and asset managers and uh, asset owners. And so we worked with those existing groups to get them up to this level that was consistent um, and uh, and could be announced for <clears throat> could be announced for the Biden summit two weeks ago. Uh, and, and, and that included something called the Sustainable Markets Initiative. There's banks uh, that were part of uh, uh, something called UNEP-FI, which is the United Nations uh, Financial Institution Group, um, and, and, a, and a few other uh, organizations. Now, but that's obviously not the whole of the industry. Uh, for example, it doesn't include the, the leading Canadian banks because they weren't part of those groups. It's not the Canadian banks didn't refuse to be part of this. They weren't asked because, you know, you're having a negotiation in order yep. to put the thing together uh, at the time. So I think the the one of the objectives between now and Glasgow is to broaden this out and deepen it. Uh, so broaden it geographically, greater representation, for example, from Asia, um, uh, deepen it in terms of the other leading uh, institutions. Um, and, and to be clear, you know, some of the world's largest uh, institutions, Morgan Stanley, HSBC, Bank of America, et cetera, are part of this um, uh, out of the gate. But, you know, we want to we want to fill it in. And on top of that, uh, very importantly, do that coordination um, uh, by Glasgow so that when we get to Glasgow, success looks like as follows. One, obviously, we will have more assets um, you know, represented within this alliance. Uh, very importantly, uh, some of the most important institutions will also have joined alongside their peers. And that the impact of having those institutions there is we've, we're about to launch a functioning global offset market. By the way, there's a lot of work going uh, uh, on on that. It's been going on for several months on uh, on that, but we're about to launch that market. That we've we've addressed things like, and this is going to sound quite esoteric, but it's quite important. Things like portfolio alignment uh, calculations. So one of the big issues you can appreciate 
uh, is that we want to fund the transition. We, the collective, we want to fund the transition. We want to go to where the emissions are. And for companies who have solutions, investments to, to reduce their emission intensities, reduce their carbon footprint, that they can get the capital and reduce. And we need a way of expressing that on the balance sheet that captures uh, you know, there could be cases where the balance sheet actually the carbon emissions go up on the balance sheet per dollar um, or it's level for a period of time. But that money is being put to work in order to get those emissions down over time. Um, and there are various um, technologies, financial technologies to represent that in a robust way. Those are being developed for Glasgow, but we need the industry buy in and, and expertise on it. So uh, have that right. ratification. So just to I, I maybe should have started with the headline. The headline is. We want it broader and deeper in the number of institutions size of balance sheet. And the second thing is we want a series of, um, we want to complete a series of things on the plumbing side of financial markets so that we have a true market in transition and these opportunities are being, uh, are being seized. How do you think about some of the regional challenges, right? There's obviously some dynamics. I think about Canada, we could have a conversation yeah. there. Uh, I could easily just say, let's talk about Chinese and the big Chinese banks. Uh, obviously, some of the biggest banks in the world, they've got a different dynamic. How do you think about that folding into this uh, banking alliance and your thought process around, uh, you know, maximum impact versus, you know, truly consistent rules? Yeah. So I think the first thing is that the way that the overall approach to getting to net zero is supposed to be um, is um and, and I'll, I'll speak in un speak for a moment it must be some use of the working in the un um is um is common but differentiated responsibilities so that's the way it's talked about okay. uh, in terms of countries so um you know we in canada the uk us we have responsibilities which are principally i mean we have different industrial structures but um you know fairly rapid and accelerating um uh, decarbonization, uh, you know, yep. bigger challenge in Canada, candidly, uh, than it is in the other two. But uh, but we all have this, that common responsibility, and and the common responsibility we would share with China and India and other major emerging economies is we need the world to get to net zero basically by 2050 on a pathway. So we have that common responsibility. But the the responsibility for India and China, I'll use those two examples, is they first have to get to their peak emissions and then uh, have an accelerated uh, decline from that. And so the, the so the profile of emissions in those economies is going to be different. The absolute level per capita is still lower um, than it is obviously in the advanced economies. Um, so if your footprint as a financial institution is what is skewed to China, or skewed to Canada, you have a different profile in terms of the type of uh, emission reduction you'd be funding. And that should be reflected in your decarbonization plan. I think the second thing to recognize is that, um, and, and, and you very much recognize this, is that we need transitions that work. We need transitions, again, I'll speak in UN talk, which a just transition is the, is the language that used. But really what we need is a transition that is, um, uh, that, uh, you know, maintains economic growth, um, helps build up not just the transition out of industries that are or or companies maybe in industries is a better way to put it that are you know that aren't going to be part of the future 
at the same time by building up those who are going to be part of the future so that uh, as much as possible, and there will be frictions, but as much as possible, we're growing jobs in the, in, in the regions that will be most affected, in the countries that will be most affected. So. Um, there's definitely, you know, there, there's, uh, there, there is big, there are big differences here, uh, without question. Uh, those can be recognized, but it's all recognized within the context of a common goal. And in the end, Correct. Um, you know, we have to get to net zero to stabilize the temperature at whatever level. Um, and certainly if we're going to do it at, at less than two degrees, uh, we have, we have a lot of work, uh, still cut out for us. Yeah, and I think the, you know, one of the things that I think has been most exciting the last 12 months is this, uh, you know, you and I spoke at it the last time we met, uh, the world is shifting from we need a penalty system to uh, we're moving to innovation and optimism. Yeah. And that dynamic means there's new opportunities and it uh, is an accelerator of change rather than a drawback to change. Um, why don't we spend a little bit uh, a time on the carbon offset market? And yep. some of the big planks you're putting together on that, because I think that is, in my mind, with like you, uh, it's a foundational piece uh, to accelerating transition. And so yeah. maybe take us through some of the things you're working on and thinking about sure. and uh, helpful for the audience. Yeah, is it, I mean, this is this is critical. And just, you know, one of the things for those who if, if you don't follow that closely, you might be um, misled into thinking that this is a big market that's sophisticated. <laughs> you know, this is a small market. Uh, it gets a lot of headlines. Uh, it's very uneven. Uh, you know, 2019, I, the 2020 figures aren't out. They'll be higher than this, but I'll quote the 2019 figures uh, about three hundred twenty five million dollars worth of offset trades. You know, that's some period. That's a, that's a global stat, Mark. That's a global stat. A, yeah. So that tells yikes. you a lot. You know, that's you, you probably did that, you know, before 9 a.m. this morning, Dan. But uh, <laughs> and you know, so that gives you a sense. And and the quality of those offsets quite variable. Some of them, you know, quite robust right. and, you know, they're permanent, but others, um, you know, on the greenwashing end of the spectrum. Now, what's happened, as we know, in the last 18 months, 24 months, uh, to their credit, is more and more companies are setting net zero objectives. So I'm saying from outside of the financial sector. So it's Microsoft, Unilever, it's, um, you know, a host of uh, host of companies, uh, 1500 now, uh, as part of the most rigorous version of this, which is called science based targets, and there'll, there'll be more by Glasgow. Uh, so quite a substantial proportion of market cap of companies have right. net zero objectives. Now, I'll pick on Microsoft. If I'm and I'm Microsoft, and I'm not just going to net zero, I'm going to net negative because I'm going to offset everything, every emission of Microsoft, not just of Microsoft itself, but those who've used the products of Microsoft since Bill Gates, you know, came up with it in the Albuquerque uh, uh, garage uh, all those years ago. Uh, I need offsets in order to do that, certainly to go negative. But I'm Satya Nadella. I'm not going to sign off on my corporate accounts unless I know that the forest that has been planted actually has been planted and is still going to be there while I'm counting it as an offset. Or that the renewable project in a developing economy actually has happened or and, and, and on. And um, so I need a robust market. Um, that's the second building block of this. The third, just to be clear, what we're talking about is offsets as a complement to absolute emission reduction. So it's not a, sometimes the charge is, oh, it's an indulgence. It's a, you, you won't do anything with offsets. No, <laughs> the, the, the path is to reduce your emissions, but you can supplement it. And as I use Microsoft as an ex extreme example, where if you, if you want to make up for historic em emissions, you absolutely have to use an offset. Um, 
our our view on this market is that it's probably it's an 80 to 100 billion dollar a year market um within uh within by the middle of uh, this decade uh because that is about 10 percent of the corporate emission reduction that's required between now and 2030 to keep on this path for one yep. and a half degrees and you well know in terms of look there's a lot of the emission reduction can be through efficiency it can be through uh, deploying capital with proven economic technologies on the renewable side and others. but there's some of it which cannot be achieved economically at present and certainly not economically rel relative to reforestation in, in Indonesia or Brazil or uh, renewables in uh, some of these economies as well. And that's going to be a more economically efficient way of taking carbon or reducing uh, carbon that otherwise would have been there. So we need this uh, market. 10% brings you to those types of numbers, 100 billion a year uh, number. And what is going on and what's been going on for about a year now is uh, we formed a group um, uh, led by a guy named Bill Winters, who's uh, CEO of a bank called Standard Chartered, a long-time history in the derivative markets, 180 institutions involved globally, sponsored by the Institute for International Finance, so bringing in a wide range of financial institutions. And very importantly, a large number of uh, NGOs are part of this process because we all know that you need the you know you need the buy-in of the of that community you never get the buy-in of everybody in that community but of the the core of that community is part of that the blueprint is published uh published in january um the the, the key elements of governance and structure and plumbing um there's six working groups doing working on all of that it's going to come out i would say by mid-july which okay, creates the good. prospect of the market at a limit, a pilot market up and running by by Glasgow, and then chance to scale. Now, this is a sophisticated audience on this call, so if you just give me another minute, let me describe what we're thinking for the market or what the group is thinking for the market is that there would be core exchange traded reference contracts um, for carbon reduction, sort of uh, you know liquid uh, reference contracts for that, and then a quite substantial OTC market built off uh, of those reference contracts or so referring to those reference contracts, because uh, as, as you can appreciate, um, look, there's lots of different ways to reduce carbon, uh, avoid carbon, and quite often they will have, those reductions will have other benefits, co-benefits to them. Uh, it could be biodiversity, it could be local economic right. development, it could be other things. And, you know, People, it's a market. People will decide whether or not they want to pay for them, those co-benefits. But that's that's in the OTC as uh, uh, realm as opposed to uh, uh, on exchange. And have you thought uh, through that stuff on tokenization, uh, blockchain tokenization, ways that we can actually clarify? Okay. Uh, if you want to think the providence of the credit, uh, it's I think that's one of the challenges when we think about the future: is how do you a determined hasn't been traded twice, you know, do you actually own something? Is it still there in place? Uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, a really interesting angle for that. We've been thinking a little bit about that ourselves. Yeah, again. I think, so. well, let's, let's, they, so tip of the iceberg, you, you, you hit on a topic that's relevant for that market or potentially relevant for that market, but absolutely relevant in a bigger scheme of things for, uh, let's call it green finance or or decarbonization. Yep. So maybe just on the market for a second, which is that um, I don't think it will be tokenized. I mean, but we've got the experts who are going through it. It absolutely has to be the case that you you can't have um, 
uh, double counting of the credit and you know the the the, the credit is distinct um, uh, and uh, what what is also important is that you have ongoing monitoring of the existing of the credit so I, I use the example right. of the forest the forest has to still be there 10 years from now now the good news is is that with you know satellite technology low earth orbit satellites and the monitoring's actually become becoming very cheap uh, and very effective so and not just for things like reforestation but uh tracking methane for example that, that that's right. you know, that that's that's quite feasible so we do all of that so I don't think it, that it, the, the providence um, or the, um, the double counting thing needs to be dealt with through tokens. But um, that is a, uh, you know, as you can appreciate, there's a huge set of potential applications for smart contracts and tokenization uh, for tracking one, uh, green molecules, you know, so am I, uh, uh, if, if I'm looking for green power um, as you know, my scope to emissions, am I actually getting green power or have I just catalyzed the production of uh, I mean, this is something, to be honest, I, I could have yeah, catalyzed I don't know what exactly talking about. or, uh, you know, you know, the issue is, but am I actually getting that molecule? That technology is developing uh, very rapidly. So actually, I can know that I get the green molecule. And that's I think that there is going to be value uh, to that. What is also relevant i think is what when we think about scope three emissions and we think about you know my suppliers and tracking the carbon all the way through the chain and then out to out to the client um and having a robust system in order to do that uh you know i i can't see how we'll do that without um I mean, I'm not the the, the tech tech expert but uh, i can't see how we'll do it without the um um uh, without uh, uh, some form of blockchain technology smart contract. Um, but I can also see that that's a highly desirable thing to do, particularly uh, given that ultimately, uh, you know, we, we're going to have quite significant double counting, triple counting in some cases of Correct. emissions, Correct. which for the moment tilts the playing field in the direction we need to go. But over time could be, you know, could be quite substantial and, and and it would better be better to align the incentives um, much more clearly because I know exactly where the molecules uh, are coming from. Um, and when I think about this from a global perspective, you know, one of the issues is we need 195 countries alongside uh, for these objectives and everyone pulling their right. weight. It's a lot easier to get developing and emerging economies alongside when um, uh, if if they're intermediaries for advanced economy products or services, there's alignment of incentives. I'm willing to invest up the chain uh, in order to reduce my emissions over there because I own those emissions. Uh, you know, if I'm Apple, I own Foxconn's emissions, right? I mean, right. That, I just gave an example which everybody knows, but it, there, there's lots of examples where it's much more opaque, and I I, I would need that kind of technology to be able to track things. And oh, well, I think uh, you're into a great topic on level three emissions because level three is like when you think about your own one, two, yeah. those are actually easy to get your head around. You yeah. can figure out your own impact when you start to think about you know in a banking world, our clients, uh, good and bad, right? You've got double counting yeah. on both sides potentially, uh, but that whole dynamic, and then if they're actually doing one, two, three level emissions themselves. Uh, you get into a really complex problem today where we don't have standardization of disclosure. Uh, we don't have standardization of what it really means. 
uh, and how do you measure progress and track it? So it's, uh, and by the way, I think this is an exciting development, not a bad thing. I think yeah. we've got some real interesting innovation going to come in the next, you know, 24, 36 months uh, around this topic uh, because you have to get there to have the kind of uh, improvement in tracking that we're looking for. You actually have to be able to track it in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Um, um, for what it's worth, for those who are listening on level three, the, the rule of thumb at present is you should disclose your level three if it's material um, and material being defined as if you added up your levels one, two, and three, uh, and your level three is kind of 40% or more of that total, you should be disclosing it. Um, now, it's easy to say, and that's that's sort of where the, the drift is going, but I think it's it, it has to get more sophisticated, will get more sophisticated over time. Yeah, and I think trial and error is going to take us uh, a long way there. Hopefully not a lot of error and a lot of trial. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, was uh, has been obvious in the discourse in the last 24 months uh, is uh, the amount that uh, commitment to climate change can be influenced by, uh, you know, short-termism versus long-termism. That could be in the capital markets, could be in the political cycle. Uh, you're a huge fan of long-term value creation. And I think what's driving your thesis and a bunch of this is how do we get to uh, the long-term energy transition as soon as possible? Uh, but how do you think about the way we embed more uh, balance, short, long, uh, yeah. get different behavior change? How do you think about that these days? Yeah, well, I'm, I, I tell you, Dan, I'm a lot more optimistic about that than I was when I was you know, trying to point out that with climate, particularly, we had this tragedy of the horizon, which is by the time it's very obvious to everybody in terms of the uh, frequency and scale and impact of extreme weather events, it's too late to achieve certainly a sub two degree outcome. Uh, and and so part of the question is, well, how, how, how do you pull the future forward? And at least in terms of the decision making of uh, of individuals and, and, and companies in a critical mass. And and part of the way was to, I mean, you have to have disclosure, not just about today, but some sense of the future or scenarios of the future. So right. that was part of what the TCFD was. Sup, that was supplemented or being supplemented by having climate stress tests, um, which is just, they are just starting to be rolled out. Correct. But really what, what's being asked of a bank is to say uh, in those circumstances, and the Bank of England, for example, is doing this, is freeze your balance sheet today. Uh, if you keep, if you had those exposures to those industries 10 years, 20 years from now, what do you think that's going to look like under a scenario where we do get to one and a half degrees uh, because carbon prices are, you know, 150 bucks a ton, and um, you know, there's there's certain um, emission reduction uh, uh, regulations and other technological. Yeah. What does it look like in that scenario? What does it look like in a business as usual scenario? How robust is your strategy? Basically, uh, the, is the question of senior management and boards to success on climate, right, or failure and physical risk on climate? And do you want to think about? Adjust, you know, beginning to adjust your strategy today in order to be in a robust position tomorrow. And by the way, if your clients have no idea the answer to these questions, that it, it tells you something as well. Um, I think that was the second way. What what I hadn't anticipated um, to the extent that it's happened has been the extent to which um, country commitments to net zero have spurred company commitments to net zero. Uh, 
and right. and the speed with which that's happened. And you know, it happens for multilateral or sorry, multinational companies as well. Uh, again, I'll go to Microsoft. I mean, it's a global company. Um, it has a commitment to net zero in advance of its home country having a commitment to net zero. Right. Uh, <laughs> partly because of you know broader stakeholder issues, but partly because there are already 125 countries that had commitments to net zero globally, right. and uh, uh, and you can see where things are headed. And I guess that's the last point. And this is when I still talk to my old colleagues, um, some of whom have turned over, but on the policymaker side, the the finance ministers, the leaders. Uh, I make this point that, look, you can go a long way by having a credible track record. You don't have to take the carbon price to 100 bucks a ton overnight. But if you're layering in uh, a gradual increase, if you have it legislated, as we've, we're going to have in Canada, for example, to 170, um, if you're building a track record in terms of, let's say, the auto sector, like the Europeans and Germans and others saying, okay, no new internal combustion engine vehicles by 2030 and supportive policies around that. Well, hey, surprise, surprise, the market will pull forward the future. Uh, we'll start adjusting now. And then by the time you get to the future, the adjustment is is quite straightforward. And so those are all the mechanisms you use. Last point, um, I do find, uh, you find, you've, you know, you're with your clients, that um, those businesses who uh, were senior management thinks about the big strategic drivers, thinks a little farther, thinks about how it could affect their business. You know, they 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 that they, they tend to be first movers. They tend to be more aligned. They tend to be more robust, and ultimately, they tend to create more value over time. So, you know, as an investor or lender, you're also looking for looking for that. Well, and I think you you, you highlighted a couple of great points there. One is effectively market pricing. Yeah. Right. And if you think about the price of carbon, we don't have a, you know, your carbon offset market will help set that uh, whether we do it by regulatory or uh, an actual structural cost of carbon. Uh, it actually allows you to price the risk you have that you didn't know you had. Yeah. And, you know, if we can get a term structure to it, even better. Uh, and of course, obviously, with a, uh, a uh, legislated price of carbon, you have a, a, a term structure, you put that in place uh, and it will drive companies' behaviors. Um, I think the other piece that uh, we find uh, really powerful is this concept now that uh, the change has economic benefit. And so in the discourse of two or three years ago, uh, it was in the divest mentality. It was in the, uh, you know, shutdown and harm. And now we've moved to transition as a thesis. Uh, and what I would say from my polling of big CEOs, uh, both in those uh, intensive industries and otherwise, is they've actually found ways now when they start to think about uh, re-engineering the way they do their business, you know, think about electric trucks uh, or automated trucks versus manual uh, in a mine site, right? There's an actual large safety benefit and a large EBITDA benefit. Yeah. And that's good for the environment and it's good for the company. That's where you start to see this accelerated pace of change. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, um, and you get the benefit you know, in the end, there's, there's there's several layers of benefit. One is pure on the, let's say, carbon pricing side. Again, you know, having a term structure, as you just said, critical for that. I mean, I can see my widening margin for my efficiency with the with the term structure on right. a carbon price. Um, if it's if it's 
sort of binary regulatory fiat, you cannot do X after 2030, for example. Well, that's also focuses the mind. Um, the, um, Quickly. Uh, but, but definitely. I mean, you look at the German automakers. I mean, the, the shift is they, quite- They are changing. They are changing rapidly. Yeah, they're changing. And actually what I found interesting about the European, the UK has done something similar, is it feeds back, that it's, it's spilling over into North America. We don't have those moratoria here, uh, and there's work on fuel standards, and there's, you know, there's probably more to come from the Biden administration. We'll, we'll share it in Canada. But you know, GM moves um, because you, you know where this is headed now. You know where the market That's is right. headed, and it's a question of getting out in front on that. Um, so you get all you, you you see the benefits of that also in in terms of in terms of your margins uh, as well. In the end, you know, and this is a point um, that it, it can only happen when people decide they really want to do deal with the issue, which then gives the politicians room to actually take the policies that are necessary uh, in order to do it. And people change their consumption and behavior accordingly. But, you know, surprise, surprise is what people value in the end. They value in greater sustainability and you're going to get paid if you're part of that solution. And if you're going to get paid in the in the quote real economy for being part of the solution as a capital provider, as an investor, you're going to get you're going to get that benefit capitalized up up front. Uh, you know, it's it's where where things are going, not where things have been, obviously, which which drives value. Well, and I think we've seen a real change in the last 24 months on the green side of investing. Um, at one time, there was a green discount and yeah. now there's a green premium and it can be small. It can be large depending on the level of transition. Uh, but that's really an insight of demand versus supply. Yeah, right. You can, think- you can achieve that premium. Yeah, and I think what we've seen, I'm interested in your view, the, you know, we see that at the, initially at the extremes of the market, you see it in energy, for example, um, you know, coal versus renewables, I mean, as an absolute extreme, but moving in yeah. that differentiation, you see it in the, um, the hard to abate sectors, who, you know, some differentiation, who has strategies, who's, who, who's got prospects, who has, in some cases, balance sheet and access uh, to capital, because, of ESG, but also other reasons why you know that, that could pull us off. It's uh, my my sense is it's gradually moving into the center of the market. And one of the things, if I go back to where we started, on what are we trying to do for COP um, and the private finance side? In the end, what we're trying to do is have the structures and the information in the markets so that um, you all, we all, in the private side are just taking climate change into account, taking the transition into account as one of the factors, one of the drivers of value in a transaction alongside creditworthiness, to which is obviously related, you know, technology risk, other factors, and that's driving capital allocation. Uh, and and when it's just mainstreamed in that way, uh, then um, uh, then we'll re- truly get the scale of flows that are needed to uh, uh, to, to tackle the problem. That's right. I often call that full cycle economics, right? When yeah. you have the real costs weighed in, you actually get a different type of decision than if it you know, didn't exist. Um, why don't we take a little bit of a drill down? Uh, in your new book, Values, Building a Better Place for All, um, you talk about the financial risks on climate change. Um, why don't we bring a few of those to life? And then uh, one of the key points in there is how do we partner on how do we address those risks and then take action on the opportunities? And your book was you know, well laid out on this topic. So Maybe just bring that to life a bit. Yeah, well, I think the you know the way we've thought about historically thought about climate change risk, and certainly the way I was first introduced to it, uh, probably most um, 
directly was uh, when I became governor of the Bank of England and discovered, oh, God, I, I oversee the insurance industry. <laughs> and I forgot about that. Uh, and um, if it's the insurance industry in the UK, uh, it's the fourth biggest in the world. And it includes a lot of reinsurance and property and casualty. It includes Lloyd's of London. And, and they have enormous physical climate risk, enormous physical climate risk. And uh, surprise, surprise, they're pretty good at managing that. Um, not least because a lot of the book turns over on an annual or short-term basis. They reprice it, they change the coverage, et cetera. Uh, but they were very sophisticated in terms of the scale of the physical risk and you know the numbers and the breadth and depth um, uh, and impact were, were, were uh, you know, quite, uh, it made a big impression, let's put it that way, just in terms of the parabolic nature of uh, extreme weather events, uh, uh, insurance losses and the so-called protection gap that continued to grow. So that which was, there were losses, but losses that weren't insured around the world. Um, so, and, and, you know, in an unaddressed world, a business's usual world, obviously those, those losses are just going to scale up. Uh, so they're the most obvious, um, but they're probably not the biggest risks um, uh, in terms of, uh, and, and, and this was a bit of the revelation of thinking about, well, in some respects done wrong, success could be failure in addressing climate change. In other words, transition risks, um, uh, the possibility of creating uh, large stranded assets uh, because right. policy isn't predictable, policy acts too late. We, you know, we don't deal with this until the middle of next decade and we slam on the brakes or, you know, there's a series of, of measures or we end up in a protectionist world because people are putting up order adjustment mechanisms because of differential effort, et cetera, as opposed to, I mean, we've left it late, but it's not too late. And as opposed to broadly moving together, the more predictable policy is uh, we keep markets open as much as possible. And the issue is, you know, how long is this activity asset going to run and taper off? And how do I reallocate capital over here where something's going to be competitive? Exactly the kind of conversations, the transactions you guys are increasingly doing. Um, and that's how we take down the transition. Uh, transition. Now, there, right. there's a third category of risk, which, you know, Canada, I don't think we want to go to because uh, it won't be the solution. But uh, but for the lawyers, which is around litigation risk, which, you know, is the classic asbestos tobacco type litigation which says Correct. company right. x knew all along that climate change was an issue or they got to a tipping point and they continued to you know pursue their activity in a way that uh, caused it um I, I really focus on the on the physical the transition and what we've been talking about and more importantly what you know you're doing what i'm trying to do is is to convert that transition risk into opportunity and you know the optimist in me is um uh, and and you know it's learned optimism on this issue it's because people are moving that i think that we can fully convert that risk into opportunity yes there will be some stranded assets but you know the extent to which those are played out over time and and there's a gradual understanding of that in the market that there's always stranded assets you know um new technologies strand old technologies new models in cars strand old models i mean this is this is the nature of capitalism uh and uh so the, that's that's the, the 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 risk framework and then and last point which is go back to something we were talking about a few minutes ago which is the extent to which a view of the future is pulled forward um 
through scenario analysis, stress testing, thinking about where policy is going, that's 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 where we start to convert those risks, you know, into uh, in, into the commercial opportunities they, they represent. Well, I think it's a, it's an interesting way to think about uh, pace of change, pace of transition, and the consequences, and they'll be good and bad, right? I'm not yeah. naive. None of us are naive on that. Um, when we think about uh, the recent Biden summit, uh, I think there were some great initiatives that came out. Uh, one was uh, the U.S.'s commitment uh, to cut uh, greenhouse gas emission by 50%. Uh, Canada was 40-45 below uh, 2005. Um, what do you think about uh, that as an economic consequence? How's that going to transform itself or portray itself out in the economy? Uh, obviously, there's going to be some that are uh, the innovation should accelerate. We should be into new. You think about your carbon offset market should develop quicker. Uh, but what about some of the other consequences? Yeah, I think, well, first, um, you know, just put Biden summit in context. That was a, 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 you know, in my view, that was a freebie to have the Biden summit. I mean, it was great to have it. Um, <laughs> it came early in the year. We got a U.S. commitment, which uh, was at the upper end of what people would have hoped. So 50-52. Uh, the Japanese moved to 46 uh, with a stretch to 50. Canada moved to 40, 45, as you know. The UK put a farther commitment out, you know, 68 by 2030, but then 78 by 2035. Uh, and there was some movement, I would say, you know, China, Brazil, South Africa, uh, lesser extent India, but all of the first three all made additional important commitments, which you know, just kind of... Slightly dance of the seven veils, but slightly revealed things that could happen later in the year. So it set up some momentum. South Korea, important commitment on coal financing. So we've, you know, we've got to keep going, but that's that's all to the good. So, but your question in the end, okay, you have these shifts, Canada, uh, and let's let's take Canada specifically in terms of the sure. impact. Um, you know, we had a thirty percent headline commitment, but a view that was revealed in the budget as it turns out that we thought we were gonna be on path for 36% reduction, given the policies that were in place. Um, yep. So I would argue that there's a gap, you know, somewhere around 10 percentage points at the high end of the range in terms of, okay, we've got a carbon price going to 170, we have some clean fuel standards, we have some various things, uh, but we need to do more on the policy front or there needs to be more, you know, innovation that comes that makes it, makes it happen. Yep. I actually think that what we need, um, and I made this point to the government privately, but it, we need a much more rigorous accounting of, okay, here's our commitment. Here's where we think the policies are gonna get. And, and this is this is where we think we're gonna get the emissions reductions right. from. Look, it won't be perfect. No prediction of the future is perfect, but it'll give people a greater sense of what's left to be done and also help you know, uh, your clients, yourself, uh, those watching um, will, you know, is it in the building side? Is it in ag? Is it in the energy side? Where, where, where is the low hanging fruit that's left, and and where could we, where could we take advantage? I think where we are now is in a position where uh, to get to the economic impact, which, uh, and I'll take the U.S., which is a little more straightforward, is that this is this is uh, going to be an ec economic accelerator for the U.S. Um, there's uh, there's an infrastructure deficit. A, a chunk of this is infrastructure related. Uh, from you know the I view is the slightly famous but stretch uh, clean grid by 2035 objective for the U.S. I'll, I'll come right. back to that. Um, uh, the um, 
uh, you know, the rollout, the, the the reworking of the transportation system, which I think will be a big important uh, element of this in the U.S. Uh, and 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 on. So I, you know, this is this is, you know, capital intensive. Uh, it's largely job heavy, which is net good. And so on a whole, it's an accelerant. I think for Canada, that's broadly true, except that it, you know we need a more uh, coherent strategy on the energy side um, that is consistent with um, making the most of our you know immense resources in oil, gas, and well bringing up um, some of the fuels of the future in uh, in a more concerted way. We have elements of this strategy in place, uh, but um, candidly, I don't think we fully have the incentive structure for. Um, uh, carbon capture for hydrogen that we could have, and I would rather that we err on the side of doing too much there, quite right. frankly, in order to accelerate uh, than doing too little. I also think, for what it's worth, and I, I think in the end this is what we'll end up doing. It just gonna, may take a, a year or two more. Uh, you know, we're at eighty-five percent clean grid right now, um, so much higher than the Americans. Yes. It requires some investment, but for lots of reasons, uh, we should be at least matching their 2035 objective for 100% clean grid. I'm not sure they're going to get there, if not trying to get ahead of them. Uh, a, because it's it, it, we have to get there anyways, first point. Second point, um, uh, it's big investment, it's job multiplying. And third point, it makes Canada a no-brainer destination for for tech, for manufacturing, for uh, you know, and, and transportation as well, obviously, for uh, that that would benefit from the clean grid, and I do think with these types of big measures, you do need a few very simple objectives uh, that helps concentrate the minds of um, you know, it concentrates the mind of industry of, of finance, and also captures a bit of the public imagination as well, which says, okay, we're going to. We're going to decarbonize, but we're going to do it by building as opposed to uh, as opposed to shrinking. So I, I'm not sure I gave you a, a a precise answer to your question. I gave you elements. I, I think it net this this is a growth strategy. I, I do believe it's a growth strategy for both of us. I, I feel a bit more with Canada. We've got elements that we need to layer in to get the full benefit of it, um, and uh, and hopefully that can come in the next in the next couple of years. When you think of clean grid, do you think that is net clean or absolute clean? I think of it as, um, look, it will be net clean for a bit, but I think of it ultimately as absolute clean. Um, you know, we have the benefit of, um, look, there'll be pockets where it's not perfect, but uh, we have the benefit of uh, hydrogen, I'm sorry, of, uh, of uh, hydro uh, in many of our jurisdictions, which, you know, uh, solves many of the, uh, I, I'm, that's a little too strong a statement, but uh, as you well know, if you've got a full renewable grid, you've it's very I mean it's very virtually impossible on on current storage to have a full renewable uh, grid uh, to have grid stability. But if you've got baseload nuke um, as as we do, um, if we've got renewables and we've got hydro high um, hydropower, uh, which we do in most cases, and we could have a lot more, um, it, it does create that ability. Now, I. Part of me is 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 thinking more than part of me is thinking that you know our hydrogen strategy. I keep. Now, I did mean to say hydrogen this time, but uh, <laughs> um, our, our hydrogen strategy needs to be um, 
uh, needs to. I mean, we need we need to move on on hydrogen in a in a big way, and I think we you know we'll have to move on blue hydrogen, given um, given some regional characteristics and and given the infrastructure we have in place and the fact that we could well be very competitive. Look, we you know well you guys look at it a lot and and, and do work in it. You know, we need we need to um, be a leader in carbon capture and storage uh, for Correct. a variety of reasons for the oil sands, for blue hydrogen, for other, and we've got geology that supports it. We've got infrastructure that supports it. We've got some expertise, yeah. and so we should just be charging very hard uh, on that. So, um, but yes, uh, to loop back to the core question, uh, yeah, uh, as much as possible, absolute, absolute clean grid. Yeah, I think of the hydro question is really fascinating because it can actually be one of the biggest forms of storage. That's okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, we don't think of it quite that way. And, you know, we had a recent dynamic in Texas where, you know, we get it gets brushed with uh, a over reliance on renewables. But in fact, it was a lack of preparedness for cold weather, I think, was the real driver. You had a lack of, yeah, you had you had I mean, it's it's worth spending a second on because lack of preparedness for cold weather and the thinking that the capacity constraint was ultimately going to come in some summer months, but it came in, you know, freak weather here. Uh, but also, you know, uh, ERCOT, as we all know, I mean, it's it, it's an island um, in grid terms, and that's a very, very risky strategy. You can't, and if you run an island, then you got to run a lot of excess uh, or have a lot of excess capacity, which, you know, they didn't. Uh, and it's got to be weather resilient. It, it, it raises an issue, of course, for us when you think about it in terms of completely different thesis than let's build a big, huge central utility that controls it all. Well, uh, I think it's, it's an and. I think it's an and in the middle. I don't think it's an or, but it is an and. And um, and of course, the battery in your garage is going to be in your car, right? Uh, and I shouldn't say of course, but there's you know there are um, we we see opportunities where that is going to be the case. Ten. 10 years out so that uh, your your electric vehicle is part of the distributed grid and and you're part of the you know the uh, load shifting uh, capacity and you get paid for that um, uh, yep. and uh, and the consequence of that is um, sorry never a good thing when Bell Canada <laughs> call, Bell Canada's called me I must be I'm in trouble <laughs> they're about to turn your internet off <laughs> I, that's exactly I'm, I'm going to say goodbye <laughs> we need 10 more minutes 10 more minutes <laughs> um, why don't we shift gears a bit Mark you've got uh, another role in life uh, you are uh, working at Brookfield in charge of uh, or developing now a seven and a half billion dollar impact fund uh, so that puts you now onto the investor category um, how do you think of uh, the way you're working toward net zero? How do you think that impacts the portfolio, the choices you make? Uh, what are some of the ideas you've seen recently that get you really excited on the innovation side? Uh, take us through kind of the last little while yes. of sitting there and, and building that business. Yeah, well, the first thing, you know, I thought I'd um, uh, put my time where my mouth is uh, on uh, climate and climate opportunity. But I, I, I fully believe this is... Uh, uh, you know, this enormous commercial opportunity, probably the biggest commercial opportunity of uh, of our time, because uh, we're re rewiring the whole uh, global economy, uh, and uh, in ways, some of ways of which we know, and I'll, I'll come to that because a lot of that goes directly to what we're doing at Brookfield, uh, but some in in innovation that's still to come, uh, and uh, and we can predict some of it. The hydrogen discussion is an example of things that are on the cusp and probably have to be part of the solution but there there, there are others that uh, you know that we don't fully appreciate that that will come so the 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 fund the brookfield transition fund the work we're doing is to say um 
the, the, the backbone of the global economy needs to shift uh, towards, uh, we, we're, we're, let me reframe, we're basically going to where the emissions are today and we're seeing we're taking companies and assets and aligning them with the path to Paris. Um, so a okay. one and a half degree path. And, and so for those who are investing in the fund, uh, what they're getting or what we're targeting is a commercial return, a infrastructure type return. So 13% plus uh, return. And very importantly, so it's it's got this dual objective that the fund will be Paris aligned. It will be one and a half degree aligned and that the assets in the fund will all be that now you know we'll, we'll do everything we can in order for that uh to uh, to be the case and what we see um is that uh more and more companies around the world uh and this is a global fund so but more and more companies around the world looking at their emissions thinking about how they can get them down um and carving out areas in which they would decarbonize uh, so I'll, I'll give you some of the examples, which is uh, of, of things we look at, which is and and, and are working through. Um, uh, suffice to say, in the tech world, uh, there is very large uh, power demands uh, in the tech world. Think uh, think of cloud providers. Think of um, uh, you know just the usage of servers uh, for a variety of tech applications. Uh, and uh, you know. The good question is: Are is that being serviced by renewable power? How do you optimize the power usage for um, that footprint, which is large and expanding? And well, given that Brookfield's got 20 gigs of um, of renewable power in operation today, almost 25 uh, in development, at, you know, on four continents, 3,000 operating professionals, and we can go and carve out and solve that issue for. Right. Tech companies. Um, so that's that's one example of it. Uh, another example would be on the auto side where you've got a couple of issues. If you're a major automaker today, first, you have your own scope to power for just your production. Uh, and in many cases, again, do you wait for the grid in your various uh, regions, your various plants to get to zero emission? Or do you bring in some bespoke renewable power and get your emissions down accordingly from that? So that's one. And, and again, having a global footprint and being able to provide those solutions helps. But then the second thing you worry about as an auto company is you say, well, what's my charging infrastructure? Uh, and it depends on the jurisdiction. Um, I need a charging infrastructure. I may want to compete on that charging infrastructure. I may want to be high. Um, a fast charging type uh, infrastructure. I certainly want to be branded on it. Do I want to own the capital? You know, do I want to own the infrastructure? Not necessarily. Uh, do I want to know that the molecule that's going into the charging infrastructure is green? Yes, absolutely, because I don't want to undercut the case. Gee, does, is there anybody who might have a lot of capital expertise wants to own the asset and can provide green power? Oh, you know, that's part of what Profil can do. So it's there's quite a wide range of things like that. Uh, that we see, and, and and I give those two examples because it kind of shows the the element of um, of the sustainable transition, which is that businesses look at their activities and start to take them apart and say, well, okay, wait, a minute, how do I separate out the final energy demand? Do I really want to own this bit? How can someone else develop it, and how can I move ahead uh, if efficiently that way? Uh, I mean, it's suffice to say that um, greenfield renewable development would also be uh, would also be part. It will also be part of this, and obviously that's straight there. Now, 
but the thing that I'll say as well is that just to put this in the broader context and um, so and Brookfield's putting two billion of its own money into this fund and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know we're having a number of conversations and you know uh, I mean, going well. It, it, this this is an area where uh, I think a lot of people want to be involved. Uh, but if I if I put it into bigger context, which is there is a very large capital investment need globally um, to decarbonize on proven technologies. Right. Quite often, it has a business process reengineering aspect to it, as I just described. And that's going to cover about 60% or so of emissions reductions today um, on proven technology. That leaves, let's call it a third, I'll round down, a third that is um, technology that is not yet economic. Hydrogen would be an example. Carbon capture and storage would be another example. And then technology that is outright speculative, um, direct air capture, sustainable aviation fuel. So we're not in that end of the spectrum, but we do think that over time, over a life of a 10 plus or 12 plus year fund, that some of those technologies will roll down into that economic. So as, as you've probably seen, Brookfield's active in hydrogen. It's got a partnership with Plug Power and some, uh, and some activities. We're active in some of these other technologies in a way that's got downside floored, you know, uh, reasonable upside, but also is just getting us ready for the day when that shifts into the uh, into the mainstream. So it's it's a fact, you know, it's, I mean, as I say, I'm trying to put my time where my mouth is. It's largely other people's money, just to be clear. I'm not going to make the difference on the fund. But the time where uh, my mouth, and and it's heartening to see just the scale of uh, and the quality of conversation. And if I can say one last thing, Dan, which is that, again, it goes to the strategic nature of this, which is it's all CEO conversations uh, initially. Correct. I mean, it's it, it's very top of mind, and you would see that in your interactions as well. Yeah, well, we uh, we put together our own impact fund last year, two hundred fifty million of BMO's capital, and we're a little more on the uh, innovation side, uh, kind of more venture and growth side as opposed to a proven scale model, which is uh, more where you were at Brookfield. And uh, our dynamic was how do we get our intellectual capital up? Right, that's the real driver. Right. Find smart people doing smart things that are look promising. Uh, but for us as an institution, we need to bring our intellectual capital uh, up to, you know, emerging in current state, wherever it is, uh, and use it that way. Uh, we've also made our own commitments. I think we're a trillion dollars in mobilizing capital uh, on behalf of uh, the energy transition. And uh, it fits, as you know, complete parallel to how you think. Uh, the role of financial institution is, is we have to be an active participant in the transition. So yeah. uh, on those things, um, maybe if we get one closing comment from you, as I, I see our time clock says we got a minute, what Ooh. gives you the most optimism these days? What's uh, giving you hope and optimism? I think it's, um, candidly, it's, it's, I'll hit on a couple of things. One is that this, it's a CEO conversation. So these, this is, this is core strategy. It's, uh, and the breadth of it and the depth of it. In other words, you know, I, I get optimistic. Anytime you've got a very large number of smart people, energetic people, entrepreneurs, invest people trying it out, uh, addressing these issues, I, I just feel that uh, the nature, the best of the market is 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 working at this and and people have taken an attitude that they're gonna solve the problem. Uh, and they're gonna and 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 what gives me optimism is I keep bumping into things that 
and it's not hard to do things I hadn't thought about in terms of solutions or speed of solutions. And that's always reinforcing. So, uh, and that's, and that just demonstrates that, you know, people are on this issue and, uh, and candidly in the last four seconds, they're going to make a lot of money uh, doing that. And that also makes me optimistic because I'm very happy for them. <laughs> things will be better that's right. as a consequence. Yeah. Well, that's uh, to me, I think I said it earlier in the conversation, uh, my big observation with our clients in the last 12 months is going from feeling like they're in the penalty box to feeling like they have incentive to change. And when you have incentive, you are creative, you're innovative. Uh, as you said, you're going to find a way to make a lot of money uh, in what is a fundamental change uh, coming yep. through. Um, Mark, thank you for your time, your insights. Uh, that was a very engaging conversation. Uh, we uh, wish you Godspeed in everything you're doing. And uh, uh, you've got the support of this group, for sure, this audience uh, in the efforts you're doing. And uh, we look forward to COP26 and what we get achieved. So. Thank you. I look forward to as well. Thank you, Dan. And thanks, everyone. Great. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.